baby bottle thing for the women's center, huh? Okay. Um, that's it. Lord's Supper Sunday. Um, that's that's really it. Uh, that's pressing. Um, and with that, I'll mention some prayer requests. And I'm not. I can't mention all of them, but I'm gonna I'm gonna run through a few of these real quick. And don't know exactly what's going on, but Eddie Jarvis is not doing well. He's in the hospital, and um, his wife has asked for prayer. It, it might be that he had a stroke. I think that's still unknown, but that seems to be a possibility. So pray for Brother Eddie. Um, lots of folks sick. The Kearns family sick. My family's sick. And um, Libby was just telling me that, that Kyle and Aaron have COVID, and I've heard of people with flus, and there's all kinds of stuff going around. And uh, so remember all the sick folks. Um, how about Jerry Eford? Anybody heard an update on Jerry? I hadn't. He's, he's better. Wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. Um, remember uh, uh, Norma Bailey? Heard anything? Home. Home. Fantastic. Okay, glad to hear that. Um, Brenda and Caleb mentioned a uh, young man. It's, it's her, I think it's her nephew. His name's Logan Belt, who is 24 years old and has a, he has cancer. And so um, keep Logan in your prayers. Um, Good to see Harris here. So Harris is doing better. Praise the Lord for that. And um, I had mentioned Scott Green to you guys, and I think I think when I first mentioned him, I told you he was about to die, and that was the information that I got. And then uh, they sent him to hospice in Richmond County, maybe two or three days ago, Monday, yeah. Monday and um, his brother. His brother told me, oh, I was going to go see him on Thursday of last week. And y'all remember the girls that came with Wayne? They're not really Wayne's granddaughters, but the oldest one sent me a message that said, don't go. Um, he's, they're not accepting visitors. He might not last through the day. And uh, so um, that was the kind of information that I was getting. Um, they took him to hospice. They took him off of the thing that filters his blood. They took him off of the drugs that were supposedly keeping his heart going um, and sent him to hospice, and they said that it would be hours or days, and he seems like he's getting better. Um, yeah, have you talked to him? Okay. Um, anyway, very interesting, but uh, can't understand these things, but... Um, he wants to go home. He's about half ill. He wants to go home. Um, but pray that he gets to. He's, this has been, a, I will say, a life-altering situation for him, which is, I think is probably a good thing. Um, but he's, uh, he's got all kinds of plans, and so we just pray for him. Pray that he's able to do those things. Um, what other prayer requests would you guys like to remind us of or, or would you like to mention? Remember the Hazel Green family. What else? I don't know. Um, yeah, get get with Allison about that. Uh, but yeah, wonderful. Oh yeah, yeah. 
All right. What other? <laughs> All right. What other prayer requests? Okay. I don't know what else to write there. We did just mention him, but um, sounds like he's got a long road ahead of him. Okay. That's right. Remember the Blackman family. Um, how old was Reagan? How old was Reagan? Eighteen. Yeah. Yeah, very difficult. Be difficult on a lot of her friends too, I'm sure. Um, what else? All right. Well, let's let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and remember these, um, dear Heavenly Father, uh, God. We just give you thanks for who you are, and uh, Lord, it is uh, it's our hope that each and every day that all of us would find time to be still, and that we would. Take the opportunity to thank you for all the good things that we have in this life. And Lord, we thank you now and uh, we recognize all the many ways that you provide for us, that you protect us, that you keep us safe and that you watch over us. Uh, Lord, we thank you even more for the spiritual goods in this life, um, for what you teach us about ourselves and most importantly about you and your son Christ. And so God, we just ask that, uh, Lord, even as we gather together and as we lift up these many prayer requests, that, Lord, you would fix our hearts on all the good things that you do for us, uh, that you are a good and loving Heavenly Father, and, Lord, that we may never forget it. And, uh, God, we do ask that uh, for the many that have been mentioned, there are some that are uh, going through difficult trials in their life and uh, many that are sick right now and some that are, that are very sick and have procedures and uh, chemo and radiation. And, God, we just pray that your hand be upon them. We pray, Lord, that um, whatever each of these are going through, uh, that you would use the, these trials to draw them closer to yourself. Uh, we do ask for healing if it would be part of your perfect will. And we know that you know all things and we trust you, Lord. Um, but God, we just come to you on behalf of our friends. Um, for those that need comforting, Lord, that you would be the comfort. And uh, Lord, for those that are looking for healing, that you'd be the healing touch that they need. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would continue to watch over our church. Uh, you know the things that we need. And uh, God, just help us to look to you for all things. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us tonight as we study your word. And uh, Lord, that you would use your word in each of our lives individually and that they would guide our families and uh, the decisions that we make. And uh, Lord, help us to be a little bit more like our Savior, Christ Jesus. Help us to love a little more. Help us to be bold and kind and compassionate. And uh, Lord, that whatever we might say, do, and think in this life, it would bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> we are going to continue through the book of Jude, um, which I haven't turned to, it doesn't appear. Um, so far in Jude, we have, uh, what have we made it through to? Uh, verse 14. And we're only going to take a few verses here tonight. Um, and I'm not going to, as I sometimes do, recapitulate everything that we've covered up until this point. Um, but I just want to remind you of Jude's overall thrust here. And everybody will tell you that 
the theme is to contend for the faith. And that, that's true. Um, and it is a, how do you say it in the Greek, Daniel? <laughs> Daniel started doing some studying on it, and he's like, you got to hear this. And uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, but that is the main idea. And uh, Jude uses some Old Testament examples. And uh, we talked about those Old Testament examples. And uh, we looked at some of the characteristics of those false teachers. We're going to look at a few more of those characteristics today. Um, but if you've got Jude in front of you, I would like you to look in verse 14. And what we're going to see here are some Old Testament warnings regarding false teachers. It says, It was also written about these, or excuse me, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. <clears throat> they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." And so here Jude is, he's again, it is a diatribe against false teaching. And I just want to remind you that false teaching is, well, it's any teaching that's, that's not true. And I think many times we think of false teaching as being things that are so erroneous that anybody would, would catch it and that only bad people have followed. That's not always the case, that much false teaching, in fact, the best place to hide a lie is between two truths. And so most false teachers have a lot of things right, and then they start slipping in uh, false beliefs, errant beliefs, errant teachings, and lead others astray. And so um, regarding Enoch here, we can go down some rabbit holes, and we will a little bit. Um, but let me just say first and foremost that we should view Enoch as an Old Testament authority. Now, I will tell you that what is quoted here, we don't have in our Old Testament and there are some that will tell you that this is quoting the book of Enoch, which some of you may have heard of the book of Enoch. Um, I will just tell you, we don't know a lot about it, but it's not authoritative. It's not scripture. And by the way, this is not in there. So this is not quoting the book of Enoch. Nevertheless, Enoch is an Old Testament authority. I want to remind you that last Sunday when we started 1 John, we talked about John's example of how the apostles were the authority on Christianity. They, they were the, I use the terms that you find in the New Testament, the foundations, the pillars, um, and so forth. Well, I think the same can be said here that Jude is using Enoch in the same way and that he is appealing to Enoch because Enoch should be considered an Old Testament authority. And for a couple reasons, just as the apostles were the closest to Christ, they knew him personally, um, they walked with him, uh, they, they fellowshiped with him, they were called by him, um, they witnessed him doing many miracles, they witnessed him after he was resurrected, um, and, and by the way, they were appointed to be apostles, they were always going to be the apostles, and Jude here is making the case that Enoch is a qualified um, Old Testament prophet in a similar way, and so I'll just briefly cover Enoch's qualifications and I'm going to say first it's going to be based on, well, both have to do with his authority. It says here it identifies him as the seventh from Adam. And then it tells his prophecy that we don't really know where Jude gets it. And so this seventh from Adam, 
Um, there's more to learn when we read the genealogy, which is in Genesis chapter 5. Um, and I'm not going to read it all. In fact, this is some of the type of Bible reading that most people skip. Um, but let me read a little bit, okay, just to give you the flavor of it and to show you where Enoch is tucked in here. For each of these people, we are given how many years they lived, reproduced, and so forth. And so it would say something like uh, when Yared, or you might say Jared, had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Yared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Yared were 962 years, and he died. Now look, if you go back, it goes all the way back to Adam, and you have those little short accounts. That's their biography that's given. But when you get to Enoch, you have something different. And so Enoch stands out, if you read this, from Adam to Noah. And this is what it says about Enoch, which is right after that. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, all, the, all of the uh, biographies before or of this genealogy here and all of those after, there's nothing like that. They're all, he lived this long, he had children, and all of his days were such and such. When you read that, in fact, it should almost make the hair stand up on your arms. It's, it's, there's something important there, and it's supposed to grab your attention. And um, Enoch here, in fact, him being seventh is not a coincidence. Um, I don't get into the numbers game. Some people are real into numbers. But there are numbers that are significant in Scripture. Um, perhaps the one that pops into your head the most is three. If you look through the Scriptures, you'll see over and over after three days and so forth. And this is all pointing um, to Christ's resurrection. Seven is one of those. Um, let me see if I actually... I didn't, I didn't write the quote down. I, I read a quote um, from one of, the, one of my favorite commentators, John Gill... And he talked about the importance of seven. Um, but if you look in the Bible, you'll see that God loves sevens. And um, we see this in the seventh in the lands, the seventh in generation, in years. This would be what's referred to as the Jubilee years. Um, and even if you think about like Revelation, it's designed around sevens. You have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls um, and so forth. And so there is a special, uh, well, something special about the seventh in him being the seventh generation from the beginning, is probably, um, well, at least noteworthy. I don't want to make much of it. There's certainly no doctrine I would um, ascribe to it. But by the way, this is quite an aside here, but I'll just mention this. Um, since we, if, if you go back to that Genesis chapter 5 and you read that genealogy from Adam, and that's all that Genesis 5 is, you'll read that, Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat Enosh, and Enosh begat Kenan, and Kenan begat Mahalalel. little side note, I tried to get my wife to consider that as a boy's name. You know what she told me? She said, you can hardly pronounce it. <laughs> so he got passed over. But Mahalalel means the blessed God, and so I thought it was a name that gave uh, glory to God. And uh, Anyway, uh, Mahalalel begat Yared, and Yared begat Enoch, Enoch and Enoch begat Methuselah who begat Lamech, who begat Noah. And if you, in fact, I've got, the, I've got a book in my office. I should have brought it out here. It's a little green book. It's about this big. And names have meaning, at least they used to. Now, sometimes today we have a name because it, people like the sound of it. In fact, people make up names now. 
Um, my, my name is Rupert, is Robert. And so if you, if it's the English version of the Germanic Robert. And you can look it up, what is the name meaning of Robert, and it'll have some little, somebody thought Robert meant, in this case it's bright fame. Sorry, I fell short. Um, but that's the idea. Well, in the Old Testament, somebody should know what Adam means. Does anybody know what Adam means? It means man. And so, anyway, if you, if you take all the names, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, uh, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, and you put what each of them means, Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the blessed God. If you read those right after one another, and again, I'm not making a big deal of this, but it's pretty interesting, and I don't even know who first noticed this, who to give credit to, but this is what it sounds like if you read their names in order, Transliterated into English. You ready? Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. Isn't that interesting? And uh, so I don't think that there are accidents in where people like Enoch and when people like Enoch are born. In fact, it says man appointed mortal sorrow. Sometimes people will ask me, why did God even put that tree in the Garden of Eden, and why did he let man sin? Well, if I just use these names, it was appointed. That's all I can tell you. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Um, but anyway, back to Jude. We've got Enoch here. Um, Enoch not only has uh, authority as an Old Testament prophet being the seventh uh, from Adam, therefore being close to the source. But what really makes Enoch unique is his intimacy with God. Um, the fact that he lived... By the way, let me just point out something here. It doesn't say that he was born holy and that he always walked with God. It says that when he had lived 65 years... Can you imagine somebody living 65 years and then starting a family? We don't live as long these days, but he lived 65 years... He fathered Methuselah. And then it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And then it says, thus, or excuse me, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, I don't know what happened there. I've often wondered. Um, but it says, it, it, it ties his walking with God to the birth of his son, Methuselah. And so I have to wonder if, uh, if it was a difficult birth or something like that. But anyway, there was a life change in Enoch at this time. And at that moment, he began to walk with God. And it was, he had such a walk with God that he was spared a natural death. That he was translated. He was uh, raptured up, uh, if I can put it that way. Um, and so he's, the, again, the only one we have this extra information about. And so Jude appeals to him as a special guy, a unique source, an authoritative Old Testament prophet. And by the way, let me say something. If you go read Genesis at that time, remember that the very next chapter it says that every imagination of man was wicked continually, but we've got Enoch at this same time and he walks with God. So it was in a day and age when the world was steeped in such wickedness that God drowned every person on earth except for Noah and his family. So let me just say this way. Enoch was quite a guy. Very unique, very special. And um, 
While we don't know exactly what happened that made him walk with God, I think we can learn a lesson from it. And I think that lesson is don't give up on people. Keep praying for people. Keep hoping for people. Um, I know that sometimes we see people that are blind to the gospel and they're blind to the things of the Lord and they're blind to salvation in Christ. But sometimes something happens in their life that, like Methuselah, wakes them up. Well, let me say that differently. That God brings about something in their life that opens their eyes and the scales fall off and they see Him as He is. But once He knew God, He walked with Him. And we should be the same way. Love Him. Talk to Him. Anyway, we're appealing to Enoch here. And um, Enoch's prophecy... How do you say this? It had near implications and had further implications, and it has implications still yet to come. So uh, what I'm saying there specifically is that when Enoch preached against false teachers in his day, he was preaching against those that had led people astray to such wickedness, the same wickedness that brought about the flood of God. When that took place, his prophecy was fulfilled but not completed Because Jude, thousands of years later, is saying, of these, and he's still speaking about false teachers. And guess what? When we read this in our day, Enoch's prophecy is still true. Um, And his prophecy specifically, I will mention it again. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. And he's very specific with his... In fact, if you read that in the King James, it's just the ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Um, But the point is that the Lord comes to judge the false teachers. He did and he will. Um, Now, we don't know a whole lot. We don't know much more um, about this, but we don't need to. What we need to know is that Enoch knew God. He walked with him. He had a special and unique relationship with him. In fact, so much so that there in the Old Testament... Enoch becomes a a type for the New Testament church. And what I mean by that is if you look, by the way, let me back up before I jump into this. The oldest person to ever live is Methuselah. And so if you look at the biblical record of this, uh, of the patriarchs um, that I just looked at in Genesis 5, well, let me flip back. It's here in my notes. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. You'll see that Lamech and Noah come after Methuselah, but Methuselah is still alive at this time. Guess what happens before the flood takes place? Methuselah dies. Methuselah's name means his death shall bring. Now when you tuck it in there, you see how it fits into this sort of narrative that God's going to send the prophets and ultimately Jesus Christ to teach about salvation in God's death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but His death shall bring, passes off the scene, and then there's the flood. You can't tell me that that's just chance. And you can't tell me that it's chance that God let Him live longer than everybody else. It is a beautiful show of God's mercy and of God's grace. But at that time, I think what we have is a picture of what the New Testament church will experience before the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because Methuselah passes off the scene, and then there's one, the one that walked with God, which should be the church. The church 
walks with God, and Enoch is taken, taken up. Um, and I like the way it's worded in the Old Testament. Um, and the various translations say it slightly differently. But in Hebrews, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, because he was not found, because God had taken him. Very interesting. That is a rapture. That is being uh, snatched up. And um, he had this, in fact, it says in Hebrews, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Well, the New Testament uses words that talk about being raptured, taken, uh, translated. And Paul speaks of this. He says, we shall not all die, for some shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And so I believe that this being raptured, translated, taken, whatever you want to call it, is what the New Testament church will experience before God pours out His wrath on an ungodly people. Exactly what happened at the flood. But if you look at that same time, you've got Noah and his family, and guess what? They went through the tribulation of the flood. And so I think that they represent the ones in Revelation that we would call the tribulation saints. Still God's people, those that come to faith Generally speaking, in, the, in Revelation, this would be those that come to faith after the rapture, but they're still God's people, and so they will be arced up, if I can put it that way, and protected through God pouring out His wrath on the earth. And uh, then you've got the other characters from the flood. It's the world. It's everybody else, the earth dwellers, the wicked. And they are the ones that... Well, in Genesis 6, the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then, of course, we read, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so um, you've got those three types, those three groups. You've got the church, the tribulation saints, and the world. And then, well, I shouldn't have said it that way. Um, but they're, they're represented by Enoch, Noah and his family, and still the world, if I can put it that way. It won't be a flood next time, but the cry that he has, that Enoch still has from Jude, holds true that the Lord will return to execute uh, judgment on all and to convict the ungodly. So let's look at this uh, prophecy specifically. Um, and by the way, when it says that Enoch walked with God... I hope that you will just take that to say that Enoch walked with Jesus. Now, I'm going to admit to you, I can't understand the Trinity, that I will affirm that God is in the form of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, but I think when we see things that, that put a human-like quality to God, that we should think Jesus, because Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is God incarnate. And I know that when we say walked with, it doesn't, refer to just that he walked with him physically. It means that he obeyed him, that he honored him, that he lived for him. But I think that there is more, more here to that. Um, so Enoch's, uh, excuse me, this judgment that we see, by the way, do you all remember earlier in Jude? Let me go back and find it. It said in verse 5, Jude says, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I mean, there's a lot of Christians that that would bother them that that's in the Bible. It identifies God of the Old Testament as Jesus, that Jesus 
is the one that rescued the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt. And here when he talks about the Lord coming back to execute judgment, he's talking about Jesus. And when we read in the New Testament about the judgment that is to come, it is Jesus who will judge the world. Um, By the way, I like it because it keeps Jesus central into the whole thing. We should never get far from Jesus in the Old or New Testament. But I want to give you a couple of passages. If you uh, look, for example, don't turn there. I'm going to read it to you. John 5, 22. It says, For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all who honor that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So here we have Jesus Himself identified as the judge. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, through 5, um, it says, "...charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead." Um, I won't read the whole context there. There's a lot more, but we see that Jesus is identified as the judge. By the way, the early Christian creeds identify Christ as coming back to judge. Well, in fact, I think that's... Yeah, listen to this. This is from Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, 31 says something similar. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who did he raise from the dead? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect judge. And he will judge all who have ever walked the face of this earth. And he will judge rightly. He will judge justly. And by the way, he's the perfect judge. The perfect person to be a judge because he lived perfectly. He's the one that brought the gospel, that proclaimed it broadly, sent for it to be carried into all corners of the earth, who called and raised up teachers. He revealed the Father to a sinful mankind that wasn't even looking for Him, and then He died on the cross. And so it is He who will judge. By the way, He gets to judge as God because He's God, but He also gets to judge as man because He's also a man. Literally the perfect judge for humanity. So, well, what about us? You going to judge us? No, he was judged for us. And that's one of the beautiful things about the church is that Jesus stood in the gap for us and was judged by God for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And so when we think of, again, that's the, as the brazen serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus uses the Old Testament to say, Just as a snake, a symbol of sin, was lifted up, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. And so this is to say that He took our sins upon Himself. Never sinned Himself, but became sin for us. All right, so Jude here, giving us Enoch's prophecy that there will be judgment, that that judgment will be uh, meted out by Jesus Christ Himself. By the way, it says that He comes with Ten thousands of his holy ones. I don't know exactly what that means. Um, I think you will find disagreement amongst uh, Bible scholars. It could refer simply to angels, to an angelic host, but it could also refer to the church um, who has already been called home at this point. Um, But he brings, let me 
I somehow missed this. Um, if you look in verse uh, 15, it says, He's going to execute judgment on all, and this speaks of all the ungodly, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds. That word convict, that is a word of judgment, not one of feeling. We sometimes use the word convict, and I've, I've brought this point up before, but it's been a while ago. Let me make it again. We say, I'm under conviction. That's not what this is talking about. And what it is talking about is doing what a judge does and render a verdict of guilty so that you are convicted of the crimes that you have committed. It is a just judgment. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't believe that there are going to be any guilty people that will speak against Jesus Christ in that day and say, oh, no, I'm innocent. Oh, you can't do this to me. I don't think there's going to be any of that. I think people will see themselves exactly as they really are in the face of a thrice holy God. All right. Um, it says it's going to convict them, render them a guilty verdict of all, the, of all their ungodly deeds and all of their ungodly words, uh, things that they've done in an ungodly way, and the things that they have spoken against Him. There are so many sins that are committed by men, and none of them are specifically pointed out. There are so many, things, so many ways that we can sin with our mouths, and one of them is pointed out, and it's speaking against God. We live in a day and age, in a culture. You can turn on the television, and I saw a little clip on Facebook the other day, and I don't know what it was from, but some movie, and some guy said, there's no God here, and it's supposed to be this tough guy scene. We should be very careful with the things that we say that are irreverent towards God. And remember, He's the creator of all, holy. And someday we're going to stand before Him. All right, so the ungodly sinners that have spoken against Him. And then we have verse 16 with some characteristics of these types of folks. And I'm going to name some, I'm going to name all of them. We're going to dwell on them for just a minute. And I want you to admit to yourself that sometimes you're some of these things. You're not all of them, I know that. But listen, it says, these are grumblers. Anybody make it past that one? Now look, he's talking about false teachers, but I want to point something out here. When we grumble, when we complain, and we can all do it, and it's just selfishness when we do it. In fact, let me just... We're all guilty of this. So many times things come up in our lives that make us gripe and groan and quarrel and complain, grumble, murmur, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes what we're really doing is just not having enough faith to trust God. And you get to the end of it, and you get it done, and you look back and go, oh, God was doing such and such through this situation. Or, oh, there was design in this all along. In fact, I'll, I'll tell my wife sometimes, it's almost like God planned it, and I'm being very facetious because He planned it. The things in this life, well, I know that God is the ultimate author. Uh, people may have creaturely free will, but God is ultimately sovereign, ultimately in charge, and we should not grumble if we really believe that. Now, look, there are a lot of churches out there, and they're out there talking about how tough the devil is and how powerful he is. Those people should grumble and complain. But if you know that God is truly supreme, that truly nothing passes, uh, nothing comes to you that is not passed through His hands and that His will will be done, you should not grumble. Uh, 
The example that we used a few weeks ago, the Old Testament example of Israel murmuring, this is what they did. They were grumblers. Uh, the second thing it says, malcontents. I know we don't use that word. We should. That would be an interesting way to talk about people. Oh, they're just a bunch of malcontents. But, uh, this is people that are not satisfied. And I can't, I can't help it, but if you're not satisfied, you're not thankful. Now look, you can say, well, you connected those, big whoop de doo But one of the other groups that we studied as an Old Testament example of those that Jesus judged is Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read everything that's in the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you know where, what their sin was listed as in one of those places? Those that were unthankful. And we tied that directly back to Romans 1. You can go look at this again in your own time. It was unthankfulness that somehow bore out all the wickedness of that place. It started with unthankfulness. So be on watch for grumbling and malcontentness in your own heart. And uh, remember... Well, just don't be unthankful. Be thankful. Be thankful in all things is what it says in the Bible. It says uh, that they follow their own sinful desires. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. There is a relationship in your spiritual life between you and sin. Now, I'm going to tell you what the relationship between sin and lost people is, and it's that sin rules over them. It has complete control of them. That's just that's what the Bible says, and I know it to be true through experience and through what I have seen in my own life and seen in the lives of other people. The lost people are ruled by sin, and they love sin. They can't quit sinning, and they don't want to quit sinning. But Christians, it should not be that way. In fact, it cannot be that way. You cannot live a life of sin. And instead of sin having power over you, you should have power over sin. And when it rears its head, you know who to go to. You have the Lord Jesus Christ as the one mediator, the advocate that you need with the Father to give you victory over sin. And so we see false teachers identified as grumblers, malcontents, those that follow their own sinful desires. Christians, you remember we talked about walking in the dark versus missteps. Everybody missteps. Everybody, I hate to even say it that way because we sin willfully, don't we? But you do not live in sin. You cannot walk in darkness and be a Christian. It is an abomination. It says that they are loud-mouthed boasters. This one has an emphasis on self. Um, <laughs> loud-mouthed boasters. People that like to talk about what they can do and what they have done. The people that... these are. In fact, you know what it reminded me of when I read that? There is a... It's, everybody knows people that brag on themselves. Kids do it too much. Um, we teach them not to do it as, as they grow up, at least hopefully. Some people never do. They want to tell you about what they've done. And sometimes you'll hear men, men can be especially prideful in this way when they've been very successful, the self-made man. Let me tell you about this business that I built up. Now look, Christian, you start. I'm going to tell you what would happen if I start talking like that. God's going to tear it all down. He's going to remind me who I am and how much I need him. And, and I'm thankful for that. Um, this loudmouth boaster, though, it reminded me of this theological movement that we typically see in what we would call word of faith churches. And these are the little God's people. The, they got the I am too movement. And so they'll talk about what God is when God says I am, and they say, I am too. By the way, Kenneth Copeland's the one that made that famous. Y'all better not be watching Kenneth Copeland. 
If you do, it better be for a study and a false teacher. Um, this is being a loudmouth boaster. In fact, I saw a little clip a while back um, of, of Gloria Copeland talking about when they fly in their private jet and when they see bad weather, how she just uh, calls on Kenneth to command the weather of what to do. It is kind of funny, but she's also saying, my husband does, and then listing some of God's job. That is terrifying. Loudmouth boasters, look how great I am. Let me take some of the credit. I'll attach the name of Jesus to something and tell you how awesome I am. Don't fall for that. These are the false teachers. It says that they are those... Let me go read the verse here. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know, I can remember being a young man and reading a verse in the Bible, and uh, the way it's worded in the King James, it says that God is no respecter of persons. You know what I thought? That's kind of rude. <laughs> I didn't understand exactly what it meant. He doesn't respect people, but he doesn't have to, by the way. But what it means is he's impartial. God treats people the way that they should be treated. He does not say, oh, well, that person's rich. Let me cater to them. That person has power. Let me cater to them. But they're not rich compared to God, and they don't have power compared to God. Um, but God is no respecter of persons. And here what we see amongst false teachers is that they do show favoritism. And it says to gain advantage. Do you want me to tell you what some advantages are? Money. So a false teacher will cater to the people that have money for sake of money. Another advantage is power. And false teachers will cater to those that have power for sake of power. In fact, uh, I'll tell you another false teacher. make you mad if I want to. Uh, T.D. Jakes, and he was like, oh man, the black people love this guy because he's a black preacher, got a big voice, he's very charismatic, and he says a lot of things that are, like I said, they're true. But he says a lot of things that are terrifyingly wrong. And sometime in his ministry, he had, as he should have, taken a stand against homosexuality, and I don't know how he worded it, but if... If anybody asks you about your morality, you should go to this. Say, well, I don't have a morality. God has a morality. He saved my soul, so I adopted his morality. That's the right answer. And guess what God says about homosexuality? It's immoral. It's sinful. In fact, he says, those that practice it shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And when T.D. Jakes was asked about it in an interview, he said that his position on homosexuality has evolved and is still evolving. That was probably, it's been years ago. That he said that, and guess what? A week or two ago, he got accused of partaking in that very thing. I don't know if he did or not. It's not my place to say, and I don't really care to tell you the truth. But the fact is that when you start approving of things, you might, you might end up right there in it. And so we should see that false teachers are those that are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, and the show favoritism to gain advantage. Enoch was warning the world back then. And even today, in 2024, Jude is warning the world today of the wrath to come. And he's going to give us, as we move forward, a call to persevere. Now, if you take on the, the challenge, I'd ask you to go back and pick through this. You can read Jude in a couple minutes, but you can't study Jude in a couple minutes. You have to, if you want to really soak it up, you're going to have to take your time with it. And you look at these Old Testament examples, Jude's 
call for perseverance, call to contend for the faith. And we're going to move forward in that uh, next week. In fact, we'll probably finish up Jude next week. Um, But let me just remind you that there are false teachers everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, I I think that they're the norm. And uh, if you have a heritage in good biblical doctrine, you should count yourself blessed. But I'm going to tell you this, if you want your kids to have a heritage in good, sound, biblical doctrine, you're going to have to fight for it. And that's what Jude's saying. Contend, wrestle, fight, go to war for the faith. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we give you thanks for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, for Jude who penned these words by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, just uh, let us be warned. Uh, Let us be fearful about it if we must be. Uh, that we would take it seriously, that we need to fight for good biblical doctrine, for sound teaching in our churches. Help us to encourage others to correct them where it's needed. And God, give us the grace to do it in love, but never backing down from the truth. And Lord, it's our prayer that you would uh, protect our family members from false teaching, especially young people, Lord. Uh, It pains us to see the educational system go the way that it has And many times the teachers that we trust with educating our children, uh, and they say on secular ideas, Lord, they have stepped into the realm of religion as they teach things that directly contradict your word. So God, help us to raise up a generation of children that are raised in the church that know truth and have enough discernment to identify the false teaching when they see it. God, we uh, we ask that you would help us each to live our lives in ways that we would glorify you, that we would put away from ourselves grumbling and and being uncontent. And uh, God, that we would not follow after sinful desires, but that we would have a disgust, a hatred of sin, and that we would only love righteousness. And Lord, it's our uh, heart's desire that in our community we would be known as a people that follow after Christ and that we love Him with all of our heart. And God, help us to love our neighbors as ourselves as you've commanded us. And uh, Lord, as we go out into the world, we just pray that Uh, We would be a shining light for you and that we might draw all men to you for your sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.